This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of Now and Not Yet. Pressing in when you're waiting, wanting, and restless for more. Written and narrated by best-selling author Ruth Cho Simons and is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. Ben Higgins, welcome to Viral Jesus. I went from this small town to then being talked about in many places, yet it felt like I was being either accepted or criticized for something that I didn't really have a lot of belonging into, like being The Bachelor. I didn't grow up believing I was going to be The Bachelor. I didn't even really thought about it. I never worked on becoming The Bachelor. People knew me as something that I didn't really didn't have a lot of ownership in. From Christianity Today, this is Viral Jesus, a show about communication and the power of social connections, where we talk to some of the most influential Christian content creators to find out how they've made their faith go viral. I'm your host, Heather Thompson Day. I am a professor of communication at Andrews University, and I love communication theories because they are so good at helping me frame how to better connect with others and myself. Connection with others is actually incredibly important. Studies show it is our close relationships with others more than money or fame that are what keep people happy throughout their lives. A 20-year-long study Harvard did found that our happiness is more determined by our relationships than the food you eat, the exercise program you are on, or the genes you have inherited. We will be super intentional about our jobs and going back to school, but we probably are the least intentional about who we choose to go through life with. Here's the thing. Your relationships matter. You can't do this alone. Our guest today is someone who literally wrote the book on loneliness, Ben Higgins. Previous star on The Bachelor and The Bachelorette, Ben Higgins is now well known for his recent book, Alone in Plain Sight, searching for connection when you are seen but not known. Being a TV star, Ben may have looked like he had it all together while being seen by millions, but really... Higgins felt alone and isolated and dissatisfied. In his book, he shares his journey to finding connection with himself, with others, and with God, learning what it means to have purpose in a disconnected world. So something I like to do to start the show is talk to our guests and just kind of read to them something that they've posted online. Maybe embarrassing, maybe inspiring. We're going to see. How do you feel about that, Ben? I'm really interested to see if I inspire or if I embarrass myself. No, I think it's very inspiring. So you say this, and this is on his Instagram. You say, over the years, I've learned that in order to be connected to others and have healthy, loving relationships, we have to first be connected to ourselves. For me, that starts with figuring out the answer to the question, who are you? So my first question for you is, who is Ben Higgins? Mm, This is such a good question. And I, I mean, I didn't come up with this question, obviously. I think many people before me did. Uh, <laughs> but I like to preface this with like, I want to strip away any labels too that the like that world or career has placed on me. So who am I? Um, I'm passionate about pursuing truth. I am disoriented currently and a bit confused. And I struggle with feeling like I belong. But I am continually 
joy filled um, because of all those things. Something that you just said that I thought was interesting was you want to start by removing some of the labels that other people have put on mm. you. What do you mean by that? Oh, I mean, life brings us so many labels. And I feel like if I just sat down today and I said, oh, I, you know, um, well, just for me personally, like, hey, I run a for purpose coffee company and uh, I am a even like, hey, I'm a fiance, a fiance currently. Um, I'm a Christian. I am uh, the bachelor. Like I could say all those things and you'd be like, oh, cool. But afterwards, if you really thought about it, I told you nothing about mm. myself. I just told you what I did. And and I think that in the similar breath, like if somebody sat down with you and said, I'm, well, I'm a doctor or I'm a lawyer, incredible things, something that people should be very proud of, but it doesn't tell you anything about who they are. And I think that's the thing that I want to get to that in that, in that question is I want you to get to know me a little bit better. And I want to get to know you a little better if I asked you that question. So something about you that excites me that maybe nobody else has cared about before, but I'm going to bring it up because you are from Indiana. Are you from where? What is it? Warsaw? Yeah. Up north. Warsaw. Because I am right. I'm like right by South Bend, Indiana from where I was originally from. So I love what I meet other Midwestern people. What has it been like going from Because I know Indiana is like a flyover cornfields. What's it like going from small town Indiana to big city life? Oh my gosh. I mean, like even when I tell my story, I always have to preface it with I'm from Indiana, a place that I love and a place that I appreciate but a place that um, I've had to kind of launch from in a right. sense of I've had to expand from it. Not And, and if I lived in any my whole life, I think I could have learned some of these lessons. Uh, they would just look different. But I grew up in a town that was, let's say there was a, a lack of diversity uh, at every level, politically, religiously, right. with race. Um, and then in addition to that, it's a very like Christian town which has so many benefits, right? Uh, and it's I, I'm so lucky to have lived in a place that, you know, was pursuing Jesus, uh, at least for me now, as I've kind of had to reinvent in a sense what that looks like to me. But I've had, but I, it was on my launching point. But yes, I always have to preface it because there is so much there that I learned and didn't learn growing up in Indiana. Mm. In your book, which, by the way, is Alone in Plain Sight, you talk about your experience on reality television, feeling known by so many people but never truly known. I actually think this is something that a lot of people can relate to because of social media. Mm-hmm. So what was that experience like for you? Well, again, uh, you know, coming from Indiana, uh, I was a small town kid and still am in many ways. And then within two years of moving from Indiana, uh, I was launched into the world uh, that people could criticize and comment on and judge um, a world that opened my eyes to different belief systems for the first time really ever and opened my eyes to different people's stories that impacted me in different ways. And then you get a, a lot more attention than you ever dreamed of. And, uh, right. and that in itself is overwhelming. I mean, to think even today, uh, you you know, a few years later on my Instagram, I have a million and some followers. Where Sunday and has nine thousand people. <laughs> to answer your question a little more clearly, I did. I I went from this small town to then being talked about in many places. Yet 
it felt like I was being either accepted or criticized for something that I didn't really have a lot of belonging into, like being the bachelor. I didn't grow up believing I was going to be the bachelor. I didn't even really thought about it. I never worked <laughs> on becoming the bachelor. There was this huge, like the biggest thing that ever happened to my life. The biggest opportunity mm. was something that I had very little pride in because I didn't really work on it. And so people knew me as something that I didn't really didn't have a lot of ownership in. So I actually watched your season of The Bachelor and I have, I don't think I've watched The Bachelor since your season. I watch The Bachelorette sometimes, but I haven't watched The Bachelor. What has been the feedback that you got? And we, you were talking about people, um, you know, thinking they know you, especially, I, mean, yeah. I, I would imagine in Christian circles, there might've been some negative or some judgmentalness. Did you experience any of that? <laughs> Come on, never. <laughs> that doesn't happen. Um, Not from the saints. Well, yeah. Well, one thing is I hope you stopped watching the show because you're like, that season could never be topped. I hope it wasn't, I could never watch it. That is show. absolutely what happened. No, thank you. That is exactly yeah, how it went that's down. That's good. Um, you know, the feedback for the most part, the, the negatives ones stick out to me the most. They always have. And that tears apart at times, you know, and I talk to a lot of mm. teenagers about this now because I know what it, I mean, these are teenagers still being able to criticize a 32 year old man and hurt me, you know? So I can't imagine being like 14, 15, 16 and having these same people <laughs> comment on my life. That would destroy a lot. Um, at least now I have some, you know, grit and uh, some life experience to look past it at times. But when I was on the show, um, the criticism stood out, but the praise was also incredible. Um, again, some of the praise I didn't feel like was warranted, nor was it uh, something that I really felt ownership in. The tagline on my season was the perfect bin, which set me up for failure from the very beginning. You're never going to live up to that expectation. And so it was kind of just, I think everybody was kind of waiting, okay, when is this guy going to snap? The I think the hardest one for me, it really was people who shared a a similar belief to me, their feedback. I mean, they could criticize everything. We see it today, right? You can pick apart everything anybody does. Why would you go on a dating show as a Christian, been sold out to Hollywood and has left Jesus? Uh, how could you date 30 people at one time and still call yourself a Christian? Those things started to really hurt because my relationship with Jesus was more intimate in those moments, because I didn't have any experience in it. I had to lean on God. It, I was closer to Jesus than, than ever, yet the people at that time that I thought would be like supporters and encouragers and walk alongside me and, and be my biggest fans and teammates were the also the ones that were like throwing the stones. That that today still you know resonate. It's also built something inside of me now is why I talk about the things I do and why I'm passionate about the things I am is because I remember that season of life and how hard Christians were on me. And I can imagine now how hard they would be on many others as well. What do you think about social media as far as, do you think it can help fight back the loneliness that you're talking about in the book? Or do you think it always contributes to it? Uh, I think it can help. I think done in a healthy way. I think social media can be a beautiful thing. I know it is for me at times. Uh, I can celebrate my friends. I can also connect with them when they're honest in their posts. Uh, but I also know last night I had a really weird day yesterday and and I've worked through this with counseling and other things, but I got on social media first thing in the morning and a couple of my friends were posting like from the bachelor world or posting some of the stuff they're up to. And ever since the pandemic, my life's been in a sense outside of work pretty slow when it comes to new opportunities and 
kind of what things I'm getting involved in and being in the headlines. And I kind of, I, I do enjoy that. Like I, I like that and it's, it's healthy for me and it's kind of where I wanted to get to. But at the same time, yesterday was this day where I started to feel envious and jealous. And I started to ask myself why, you know, yeah. my biggest insecurity my whole life has been one where I'm like, when people really get to know me, they're not going to like me. And I thought that might be fixed when I found somebody that was committing to love mm. me forever. And that was my fiance now. And I, I'll be honest, it hasn't. She's incredible encourager to me and, and her love means the world to me, but it hasn't taken away that insecurity where I look around at these people doing these things. I'm like, okay, and now people have really gotten to know me outside of just being the bachelor. And I feel more disconnected from that stuff than ever. Uh, what is my, is the narrative that I've told myself mm. the biggest insecurity coming true? And so, you know, it's just social media is a difficult thing to navigate because at times it's the most beautiful place to connect with people that are distant and in, in a different place. But it's also the thing that consistently makes me uh, kind of measure myself against others and makes me question who I am as a person. I think it's helpful, though. For you to admit that and talk about that, because I can tell you people listening, obviously look at 1.2 something million followers mm. and they're like, okay, when I get there, that's when life starts. Mm -hmm. So I think it's healthy and helpful for you to say, actually, even here, we always want more. Oh my gosh. I mean, to, to quote Jim Carrey, um, <laughs> the philosopher, the philosopher, the, the Christian theologian, I think he once said something that's like incredibly brilliant. And he said, and I'm probably going to get it wrong, but in, in, in a sense, what he said was, I wish everybody could taste fame because they'd realize it's unfulfilling. Um, or, and it was something that you can look up the exact quote about fame that he said, but it's, it's that message is I wish everybody could taste this and see that it doesn't one change anything and it just continues to make you chase after something that you believe will satisfy the soul yet it never does and you just want more and and I mean that like from from the depths of my soul it's a consistent struggle uh to say how do I stay relevant so that I can feel like I matter yet mm. at the same time the more relevant I became, the less that sunk in. It just made me go, how do I keep? How do I keep? How do I keep doing something to stay in the headlines? And, you know, now it's a different season of life for me. I'm getting ready to be a husband and I'm uh, no longer the bachelor and I'm no longer going to be probably out doing things in the name of the show as much. And, and I have to ask myself like, okay, that kind of that question you asked me at the beginning, what's left? And I, I say all this to say maybe somebody listening to could relate. Maybe they were a great high school athlete. Maybe they were the CEO of a company. Maybe they were a really good analyst at a company, um, a doctor, a lawyer, whatever. And then as that stuff starts to like slip away, um, what's left? You know, those labels are taken from you. Is that the only thing that your legacy or the only thing that you're built on? Wright Thompson talks about this a lot in his book, Happy land, but he compares it with a lot of athletes like the Michael Jordans of the world. Michael Jordan, right, is entering into a new season of life where this generation coming up has never seen him play basketball, nor is his name as recognized as maybe it is for, for you and I. What is that going to look like to Michael Jordan? Because the only for for years, the only thing he was known as was like the king of basketball. And now he's going to have to look be something different and be happy with that season. And I'm and it, I'm not right. Michael Jordan, but that parallel can relate with all of us is when we enter a new, new seasons of life, what's left. 
one of my mentor actually was the spiritual advisor for um, Bill Clinton and George Bush. And something he always says to me is, what's the vision for your life? And mm. don't you dare say a job. And that has always, I'm like, the first time he asked me that, I didn't have an answer because my whole life, all I've thought about is my career. And so even you just saying that, I think that's something yeah. that's really characteristic of our generation though, probably because of social media, right? You're constantly mm. looking around and comparing yourself to not just your neighbors, but 2000 yeah. of your closest yeah, You're right. Friends. And and it's kind of how we grew up with people telling us, and I think they had great intentions, but teachers, parents, grandparents, whatever, telling us, you can be anything you want to be. You can be a doctor, a lawyer, an athlete, whatever. And then when those things don't happen, or maybe they do, maybe they both ways, they're, they don't satisfy us like we thought they would. Uh, they don't bring the, mm. the joy and the the contentment and the comfort, but also the curiosity that we thrive and drive as humans um, as what I believe God created humans, like it, it just doesn't satisfy yet. It's what we were told maybe would. Right. And, and like with good intentions that we were told they would. And then you add on the social media part of it where it looks like all of your friends are just having the best time, you know, they get it. Um, <laughs> and it makes you go in my pains and my struggles in my, in my seasons of unhealthiness, where am I missing the mark? And it's a mm. it's a consistent comparison game, and social media adds to that when social media is not used for good. That's actually a great segue because in your book you vulnerably share your journey of finding connection with God and feeling known by God. What would you say to someone who is struggling with feeling like if they don't have a massive audience, then that somehow negates their own calling or purpose? Mm. I would say this um, one my first step would be listen and hear that out. Like, where is that coming from? Where is that feeling of insignificance coming from? Because, you know, I could tell them all day, oh, you know, you want a million followers? I can, I, I wish you could taste it and see that it doesn't fulfill. I could say that, I don't know if it'd resonate. The, the one thing I would continually do is say the greatest impact or the greatest moments that I have in my life is when um, I'm in community with the people sitting across the table from me. Um, mm. and I truly believe, uh, and I don't claim to know a lot, but I do truly believe that we make the greatest difference when we're community makers and community impactors in the community that where we are at right mm. now. I tell this story in the book and I'll give it away a little bit. Uh, I was at my uh, cousin, I was invited to be in my cousin. She was a high school senior, um, play. Uh, it was a musical, it was Greece, and I was invited to be in it. And she's from Marion, Indiana, uh, which you might be familiar with. But it is, it's a, it's a fine town, about an hour south of Warsaw. So it kind of sits right above Indianapolis. Very similar things to Warsaw uh, in the sense of it's it's fairly conservative, and it's Indiana. And she invited me to it, and I got there. And there's people from all different colors, uh, all different sexual orientations, all different... Uh, insecurity backgrounds, nerds, uh, athletes, whatever, in this group of people. And it's their very last theater play. They're all standing around this circle and they're all crying since their last time. And they start speaking to each other and and I'm getting to witness it. And one guy goes, I've never been more accepted than I have here. I'm going to miss you all. The other person goes, I've never felt like I belong more than I belong here. I'm going to miss mm -hmm. you all. Uh, my cousin spoke up and said, this is the place where I felt like I could shine. I'm going to miss you all. 
And I was listening to this. I was like, how beautiful, but also how sad, like they're leaving this. Right. And then it hit me, call it God, call it just a really lucky moment of clarity. But it hit me that all of these people have tasted and seen what love and kindness and celebration and uh, brother and sisterhood have felt like. And now they're going to go off to college or they're going to go off to different jobs. What if they took the lessons they've learned in this group and brought it into their next groups? What if they could be the ones that change it? These people don't have a million followers. They're high school kids. What if everybody listening said what I've tasted and seen and Mm. learned about love and kindness and celebration and joy and mourning what if I transferred that over to my other groups? That doesn't, you don't need a million followers for that. You just need intention. This episode is brought to you in part by World Relief, an organization that partners with the local church to serve the most vulnerable. Around the world, increased conflict, the lingering effects of COVID-19 and disasters caused by our changing climate have left millions of people in desperate situations. Many are fleeing their homes and are facing starvation, persecution, and more. These overwhelming challenges cause many of us to wonder, can I make a difference? The answer is simple. Yes, you can. When you join The Path, World Relief's monthly giving community, you partner with World Relief in bringing hope and transformation to the millions experiencing vulnerability around the world. And when you partner with your monthly gift by September 30th, Your first year of monthly gifts will be matched dollar for dollar up to $25,000. Double the impact of your giving and visit worldrelief.org slash viraljesus today. In the book, you talk for the first time about your addiction with painkillers. Can you walk us through that journey? And first of all, thank you for sharing it with people. And how, what does the recovery look like for you? Mm, um, Yeah, well, I'm really thankful that I'm able to share it. uh, Because for years, I didn't, I wasn't able to. But, you know, I was an athlete um, in my golden years. And uh, (laughs) I got hurt. Uh, my junior year of high school, which kind of changed everything. I'm pretty tall. Uh, I have like a, a pretty good build, uh, luckily. And so I was like, I'm going to go play football in college. I'm going to be a quarterback in college. And that's going to bring me all sorts of satisfaction. You know, that's going to fulfill everything. And then I got, I blew up my knee like terribly mm-hmm. um, in a game. And I'm laying down on the sidelines, like with my knee twisted all up. And it hit me, I'm done. Like I am done. Like this is all changing mm. in a second. And uh, and so long story short, I was prescribed painkillers for that knee injury. And then another injury that I had, I was prescribed painkillers for about um, 18 months consistently. And I took them and it satisfied a lot. It, it numbed my pain. It made me disappear from the world. It made me forget about the things I had lost. Um, it was, I, when I say satisfying, it was satisfying all of my deepest pains in a sense. Uh, it was numbing me from that. And so then when I was no longer prescribed, I wasn't ready to stop being numb. And so I started to find other ways around it, stealing, buying, tracking down wherever, wherever I could, not really realizing I had a problem until I started stealing from like family members and, uh, being ashamed of that. 
and feeling like I need to hide mm. this and, re- and saying, oh, this probably isn't good, but yeah, I'm not ready to be done. About oh, uh, two and a half, three years in, I had had such a dependency on painkillers uh, that I don't really remember that season of life. Uh, I just remember taking them and getting through wow. the day with them. And, uh, and one day uh, I woke up uh, and again, I was pretty much numb to all moral authority to all, I was treating people terribly. I was ruining relationships. I was hurting people along the path. Um, but not really feeling it, not really being convicted because I was numb to it. One day I woke up and I looked at myself in the mirror and I looked in my eyes and I remember asking myself the question, are you the man you ever wanted to be? Or are you, are you on a path to the man you ever dreamed of being? And I went down my hands and knees and I said, God, like, if you're there, I need you. Uh, if you exist, I, I need you mm-hmm. now because I can't obviously do this alone. And so the path of recovery kind of started there. Um, it started with the, uh, I guess, with the, the honesty with myself to say, I want to do better. Um, and also the honesty with to myself to say, I, I need to do better. And then reaching out for help wherever I could find it. And, uh, it, you know, it's still, I, I don't necessarily have a, a, an addiction problem. It's still a struggle at times. Like when real pain sets in, I go back, mm-hmm. I revert back to how can I numb this? But now I have the tools, I guess, and maybe the experience to say, uh, mm-hmm. instead of numbing it, how can I lean into it? How, what, what do I need to do to work within this, work through this? How, how am I learning from this pain? Uh, which has been a really drastic change from maybe, you know, mm-hmm. now nine years ago, um, because it was a lot easier just to forget and push up, move on. In the book, you talk about how you used to have this fairy tale view or understanding of love. And I'm sure being with a production crew for a love reality show that was only intensified. What has it been like to <laughs> yeah. deconstruct the fairy tale that you had in your mind? It's been... Um, incredibly healthy recently. I, uh, I have the most terrific partner. Uh, and I say that because she is a supporter, an encourager, a truth teller. I'm a critic. I get really down on myself and people. Um, she's a really good partner to me. I hope she would say the same, but I'm not going to speak for her. Uh, she's a really good partner to me because she continually loves people well and, uh, and judges people very slowly if ever. But this is so I say all this to preface that like I just I mean, I'm I'm very lucky. But when I started dating Jessica, uh, you had those euphoric fireworks. The world stops. She walks in a room and you're nervous mm-hmm. and there's butterflies. Uh, and, and then over time, those moments become less. They still happen, but they don't happen every mm-hmm. time. And you question you know, especially as like a teenager, I remember, or even in college, like you would meet somebody and you'd be like, oh my gosh, I'm in love. Like, because my world's stopping and I'm nervous and I'm excited. And when, when those moments slow down, you start to question it. And, and the one thing I've recognized and realized is that love is a commitment. Love is beautiful. Um, love is having Jessica look at me and yeah. say, you can be yourself in front of me and be unashamed. But it's not the euphoric fairy tale all the time. It's not always rainbows and butterflies. And, and that to me is exciting because we're building a life together right. as partners. We're not building a fairy tale. Speaking of the breaking down of fairy tales. So I just read this morning that when you were on The Bachelor, you actually had a parasite 
<laughs> and you lost 30 pounds while yeah. filming. Like, what? How were you able to do that? I don't know. Uh, so I went to my buddy, my best friend's wedding. I was the best man in a wedding. And we spent a lot of time in Honduras and he was marrying uh, a, a girl from Honduras. And so we did the wedding in Honduras. Uh, and for whatever reason, you know, you travel abroad wherever, um, you just eat things and drink things that you're not used to eating and drinking and your body's not used to right. it. And so I did that, came back a week later, we started filming the show and, and all transparency. I remember sitting in a car and like my stomach just started to churn and I was like, Oh, I don't feel good. Like, I don't know what happened. I don't feel good. And so, you know, you do what you got to do. And then the next day, same thing. Next day, the same thing. Next day, the same thing. So I get, I start filming the show and this is like known throughout one, a little bit awkward. Uh, maybe it's helped me at times. 200 people work on that show. All 200 people uh, knew what was going on. Like, Hey, Ben needs to go. He's sick. Well, I started losing weight, 30 pounds. Um, they were retailing, tailoring wow. my suits. And the, uh, so long story short, they, the doctor there said, Hey, you're just stressed. And I was like, well, yeah, I'm stressed. This is <laughs> super hard. Um, I get off the show and find out that I have a parasite in my gut, like worms <laughs> oh in my God. gut that had like rashed out my side. Like they were literally coming. Like my, my stomach was like, I still to this day can't eat, um, like scrambled eggs or eggs over easy. Like there's some enzyme in that wow. that my body doesn't process because it just tore through my gut. Um, Here's the good part. Here's the lesson to finish this up. <laughs> As the bachelor, you sh you you think that you are the coolest thing in the world, that you are the mo the most desirable person in the U.S. They tell you this <laughs> over and over and over. So you start to feel that way. You start to have a little, you know, skip to your step. You start to dress a little cooler. You want one way to humble you and for this not to sit in get a parasite and have that happen to you on every day of the season. And then you won't feel so tight. In your book, you say, I don't think we live in the most divisive time in history, but rather the most isolated and loneliness, loneliest. How do you think our loneliness contributes to divisiveness? I mean, think about what the feeling of hiding, like think about what hiding is. Okay. So being alone is hiding. Uh, you are separating yourself from the world. You are going on by yourself. So when you're lonely or you're ashamed or you feel guilty, you typically, uh, uh, at least my first reaction is to hide those things or to hide from the world, those things. And so as a result, it pushes me into isolation. Now at the same time, if we're feeling, you know, we, it, it it's proven, um, that we are in the loneliest time, uh, at least since we've started keeping track of right. how people are feeling mentally. So if we're in the loneliest time, we're also going to be um, in the most divisive time because we're hiding some of the biggest things from our from others. And mm -hmm. I, I have a theory, and I've yet to be proven wrong on it. I might one day. I hope one day I am. <laughs> I think actually like our pains and our sorrows might connect us more than our joys and triumphs. So that when we sit and, and we sit in, in other people's pain and when we are vulnerable in our own pain in the appropriate situations, I believe it allows us to connect and to feel less alone. Um, because typically, if we're ashamed of something, we feel like we're the only one doing it. And when somebody reaches out and says, no, like, I'm, I'm there too, it connects us in a deep and meaningful way. And, and as we get more lonely, I think we, we miss the opportunity to connect with others because we don't allow ourselves. And so I think it divides us. And I, I think mm. it also forces us into 
not having conversations and moments that matter that maybe could connect us again or reconnect us. Uh, it forces us to be ashamed and to walk away and hide. One of the questions I love asking people is, did you know, like, let's go back 17-year-old Ben, 15-year-old Ben, maybe even 10-year-old. Did you have this like feeling that there was going to be a spotlight on you one day? Or have you been shocked to see how your life played out? It's interesting. I I always wanted a seat at the table, meaning I, I always wanted to feel like I mattered. I'm an only child. And so I consistently okay. tried to find ways to be involved, to be around friends, to be around adults, to feel like I could speak up. I remember saying this prayer uh, when I was little. I don't know. I loved David Robinson growing up. I don't know if you remember David Robinson, but he was a basketball player for the San Antonio Spurs. Okay. And uh, he was just a, a good leader on the team. And uh, he spoke about Jesus often in, in his press conferences. And I remember praying, hey, if you give me the platform like David Robinson, I'm going to mm. use it for good. Um, a super selfish prayer. Definitely a childhood <laughs> prayer. But I remember that prayer because now it kind of like, I don't know if it makes sense, but yes, I always felt like at some moment there was going to mm. be the opportunity to say, how am I going to use this? Now, I can't say that I've done this well on my own. I've had great friends and great family around me who have pushed me, you know, especially when The Bachelor came out and there was praise coming. Uh, my A couple friends and family said the same message to me, said, don't use this for yourself. Use this for something greater than yourself. Uh, and I, it's tried. I've tried to make that my pursuit and it's made this a lot more fun, a lot more memorable. It's brought a lot more people into it. And it's been been a lot less about me. I, I would not have done that on my own. I think I would have really ran with the the whole bachelor deal for a lot longer than I have if I if it was all about, you know if they didn't, if I didn't have them. But yes, to answer your question, I, I always thought there would be a moment. I just didn't know what it was or what it would look like. And I just have to affirm you for a second because I absolutely think you've used it in a really powerful, special way. And I. As somebody who has watched a lot of The Bachelors, you and Sean Lowe, favorite Bachelors, I think everybody agrees with this. Like, this is like an American uh, thing. Uh, let's take a poll. Let's see. Yeah, I think we should, because I think this is a normal reaction for people. In the book, you also say, a reconnected life is a life that loves, not in words alone, but in action. So as we close here, what challenge can you give to someone who is listening today and just feels so defeated and so isolated and overlooked? on how they can live a reconnected life. Mm. Well, my first would be a shameless plug to maybe pick up, pick up alone in plain sight. Uh, you know, it's not just my story. It's a story. I had somebody this morning ask me, you're 32. What, what made you think you could write a memoir? And I was like, well, it's not fully a memoir. Uh, it's the story of myself and others who have had, um, most of them have had traumatic incidences in their life. Uh, and they've worked through those or in the case of Annie, who I read about, she, unfortunately passed away at, you know, a young age. And I was able to interview her on her last couple of weeks. Mm -hmm. So that would be my first thing just because I don't know, I feel like I should. The second is, and, and maybe the more meaningful part of this is I, I want to promise you one thing, if you're listening is you're not alone. Um, you aren't, and that's the mm -hmm. truth you should speak over yourself is that you're not alone at any level. You're not alone in your own pains and your own sorrows and the things that you've done that you feel like are, are the worst mistakes ever. It, you're not alone with people and you're definitely not alone uh, with God. And, and through my life, I won't say I know a lot, but I do know 
um, that a, a God of love and a, a God of grace and mercy um, has surrounded all of us in a way that um, allows us to be free uh, of those things and to move forward. And so that would be my first lesson or my first piece of advice that I believe is true. Um, my second is, uh, as you start to heal, use your story to help others, mm. that our stories are things that uh, connect us, that shape us, that allow others to know us. And so as you heal, don't be afraid to share your story with those who need it the most. Because I believe in those moments, at least in my life, when I began to share my story, I personally find a joy and a healing and a connectedness mm. that I never believed I could. It allows a space for people to go, me too. Um, I've been there also. Ben Higgins is the author of Alone in Plain Sight, Searching for Connection When You Are Seen But Not Known. You can join the over 1.2 million people who are already following him online. And you should absolutely order a copy of his book, which I think has implications for all of us. Thank you so much, Ben. I'd like to end each episode with a little segment I call Growing Viral. And this is where I scour the Viral Jesus hashtags on all of our social channels and look for someone who maybe you haven't heard of yet, but you should certainly be following as they grow viral. Today, we talk to Vimbo Jwandasara. Vimbo is the creator of Between Believers, the online speed dating event where you get to connect with other people of faith just like you. So you started a online speed dating event where you match people of faith called Between Believers. How did you come up with this? So I personally have spent a lot of my adult life being single and just trying to find someone else who is on the same wavelength as me. And I've attended an in-person speed dating event. Um, and once the pandemic started and COVID, I actually attended an online virtual speed dating event. And I was like, hmm, I think I can do this better. <laughs> and so not to be vain or anything, but I was just like, you know, there's got to be a way to do this better. Also, because I'm an educator and I've been using platforms like Zoom and Teams and things like that. I was like, there's got to be a way to create an experience that makes people comfortable, but also mm -hmm. brings together the right kind of people who are on the same wavelength and so that's where that idea came out of. So what have you found to be your biggest challenge as you try to grow viral with your little business here? I think it's interesting because um, what I'm discovering is a lot of people haven't done speed dating, either in person or virtually. Mm. And so just explaining to people how it works and that it's low pressure, um, like the number one feedback we get from every event is everyone says it's so fun. Like it's just fun to meet a bunch of people, but kind of getting people to understand that who don't use Zoom or other platforms regularly, that's probably been the biggest challenge is just opening people's mind to it. How do people find you? If somebody knows somebody who is looking to be in a relationship and they don't know where to start, they don't want to swipe people on Tinder, I think you're a great alternative between believers. How do they find you? So we have an Instagram page. Find us. We're between believers. We're at between believers. We also have Twitter um, and a Facebook page. And those that's where we just post when events are coming up. Um, we've also just had a lot of people who've attended our events invite their friends. So that that's a really good way that we've just spread what we're doing with other people. 
We hope you will not rest until you find Vimbo and support her voice and her work at Between Believers. Join us in supporting her growing viral community. Viral Jesus was brought to you by Christianity Today. I've been your host and creator, Heather Thompson Day, producer and audio engineer, Lauren Joseph, and executive producer, Ed Gilbreth. Please review and recommend us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Make sure you subscribe and rate us on your preferred platform. Join us next week as we talk to Raymond Chang, the president of the Asian Christian Collaborative, about faith, dignity, and standing together. See you next week on Viral Jesus. This episode was brought to you in part by The Compelled Podcast, which uses gripping, immersive storytelling to bring Christian testimonies to life. Listen to missionaries, addicts, martyrs, and more who have seen Jesus at work in unbelievable ways. Listen on your podcast app or compelledpodcast.com.